Good to see everybody. Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. It's been a while since we've been in Galatians. About six weeks, I think. But uh, for the new folks, um, we have recently started a new series through the book of Galatians. Haven't gotten very far yet. Uh, but instead of going verse by verse, which is our normal style of teaching here at Calvary, we decided to do it topically uh, based on its main theme. Now, the main theme of Galatians is liberty, the liberty or freedom that is ours in Christ. The key verse of the book is Galatians 5, verse 1, where Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so, as I said, when we began this series, we're going to focus our attention on three main areas or topics of liberty that Paul brings up in this epistle. The three of them are liberty from lies, liberty from law, and then liberty for life. And again, since we put our study in Galatians on hold during the month of December to do our story of Christmas series, let me review briefly where we are. We have finished looking at the first main point, freedom from lies, which kind of was more of an introduction to the rest, but okay. Um, as we have previously said, we are living in a world full of lies. And I don't have to tell you, it seems like it's getting worse by the day. Uh, some of the lives we, uh, lies we experience are small and have a minimal impact on our lives, while others are very serious and potentially life-altering, like the lies that uh, are told within the context of marital infidelity. Most people understand that most, most lies, whether serious or small, can only affect us uh, while we live on this earth. In other words, they can only hurt us temporarily in this life, but can do no more to us after we're gone, after we're dead. But then there are some lies that will not only affect us in the temporal, but will keep on affecting us in the eternal as well. These lies tell us how to get to heaven, when in reality they will damn us to hell forever if embraced. One of the lies that Paul dealt with in his missionary journeys, and in fact the one he's dealing with right here in his letter to the Galatians, was the lie of the Judaizers, which was, was legalism. After sharing the gospel with the people of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, Paul moved on to spread the gospel in other regions of Asia Minor, and then and then over into Europe. Later on, he learned that the Judaizers had come into the area after him, trying to pervert the gospel that Paul had given to them, and the churches were listening to them. That was baffling to Paul. The Judaizers were Jews that were following Paul around, telling the Gentiles that it was necessary for them to become Jews first, get circumcised, keep the law of Moses before they could exercise faith in Jesus and be saved. They were also telling the Jews that they needed to remain loyal to the law and keep practicing its tenets if they wanted to then exercise faith in Christ and be saved. So they made law the entranceway into grace, which is ridiculous, contradictory. So Paul wrote this letter to kind of set the record straight by presenting, actually defending, because he already had presented the gospel to them when he was with them. But now he's defending the one and only true gospel, the gospel of grace that he preached. And that brought us last time, guys, to the second major section in our series, which we're calling a journey in liberty through Galatians. 
and that is liberty from law. First main point, liberty from lies. Second main point, liberty from law, which, as we said last time, is really liberty from religion. Religion. Uh, as we studied a few months ago, and I'm going to be reviewing. I couldn't just jump in because any new people would be completely lost. So bear with me. I will be reviewing from last time, and then we'll then pick it up and get going for the new study for today. But as we studied a few months ago in our series, The Top Ten Lies of the Devil, w without a doubt, the biggest lie the devil has ever fed, ever fed the human race is the lie that you get to heaven by being good and doing good. Or in other words, that heaven is a reward for deserving people. And folks, as we have said, that is a lie. It's the lie of religion. Uh, most of you know I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, we were taught that religious practices and observances like going to Mass, lighting candles, keeping holy days, praying the rosary, abstaining from certain foods during Lent, and other acts of piety would earn us a place in heaven. And that, of course, is absolute blasphemy against the completed work of Jesus Christ who said from the cross, it is finished. Work of salvation is done. He did it all. He died the death we couldn't die, paid for the sins that we couldn't pay for. He died in the Calvary's cross, paid our debt three days later, rose from the dead, stepped from that tomb victorious over death. And uh, we don't need to add anything to it. We just need to receive it by faith. So Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians to refute legalism as a basis for salvation and to reaffirm the message he had already given to them concerning the true gospel, the gospel of grace, something he expressed very plainly, and you all know it, hopefully you've memorized it, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Uh, I mean, this should shut down the whole argument. There are Christians who still believe in the law, that we should be practicing it. Uh, we'll talk about that more as we progress through our study. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. I mean, that should close the case. That should settle it. So, okay. So what I'd like to do is, uh, from verse 11 of chapter 1 through verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul is giving us his testimony. You know, that's something that is is kind of neat when God opens the door for us to share our testimony, right? You meet a Christian for the first time, and what's the first thing you often say? Hey, what's your testimony? Yeah, how'd you get saved? You know, it's kind of, I, I love to hear how God's worked in other people's lives. Well, Paul is laying out his testimony uh, before he gets into actually getting into the, the nuts and bolts of his argument, why they're wrong, and legalism is not of God. So let's start with verse 1 excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, guys, scholars are divided on the exact chronology of Paul's testimony. It seems that uh, right after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, you can read about that in Acts 9. In fact, why don't you turn to Acts 9? Let me say it again, though. It seems that right after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and was led into the city, now being blind because of the bright light that shone upon him and Jesus talking with him, so he was led into the city being blind. He stayed in Damascus for three days in darkness where he fasted and prayed and pondered his life. We talked about this quite a bit last time we were in Galatians. So you can get the get the CD. You, you can't get the CD because we don't have them anymore. I'm just used to saying that. You can go online and listen. Okay, we're in a new age, new. Got to get into the new millennium, all right? Get your, get your cassette out and listen to it. Um, so Paul's there three days, fasting, praying. He's got a lot to think about. I mean, his whole life uh, has been going in one direction. <laughs> oh, it's all wrong. Well, not really, but he needed to make a drastic course correction. And after three days, God sent a believer named Ananias to Paul, who at this time was still called Saul. Verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? Uh, people who called on the name of Jesus living in Jerusalem. This, wasn't this guy their worst nightmare? And he's come here for that purpose so that he might bring uh, Christian believers bound you know, uh, to the chief priest there in Jerusalem. Verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah. Now, as we said last time, at this point, there seems to uh, be a gap of time between verses 22 and 23 of Acts 9, a gap of time that many think was about three years. After Paul's initial ministry in Damascus, which kind of lasted for several weeks or even several months, instead of going right up to Jerusalem to introduce himself to the other apostles, the Lord led Paul into the desert of Arabia, where scholars think he spent the better part of the next three years. During this time, Jesus taught Paul directly. Now, I, I, I don't think that Jesus appeared bodily to him. Maybe. I don't think he did. I think what happened, what happened was that the Holy Spirit was giving Paul revelation after revelation about the gospel. Uh, not just about the gospel, but... He also gave to, uh, to Paul insight into how the Old Testament scriptures all pointed to Jesus. That's why he could preach Jesus so quickly. Because once the light came on, and, it, and he remembered, no doubt, Psalm 40, verse 7, where Jesus said, the volume of the scroll, the entire Old Testament, is written of me. 
And then, of course, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures daily. For in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that testify of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. So the entire Old Testament, what the, what the Jews called their Bible, the Tanakh, uh, our Old Testament, all pointed to Jesus. Of course, the New Testament is totally about Jesus. And so during this time in Arabia, the Lord Jesus, through the, through the Holy Spirit, was teaching Paul, leading him into the scriptures, revealing things, giving him uh, interpretations that he never saw because he never thought to put Jesus into the Old Testament equation because he's the answer to everything. But this time, guys, in Arabia was going to be invaluable in Paul's ministry. Three years. How would you like to go to school for three years with Jesus? In heaven, I can't wait for Jesus to lead the Bible studies because you know what? He's the word. I want to hear what he has to say. I'm tired of listening to me. And so, so, you know, but this was going to be, this time in Arabia was going to be an invaluable time in Paul's ministry. Uh, look, the apostles had received three years of teaching from the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth bodily before they were sent out to do the Great Commission. And now Paul was going to have his own opportunity to be taught by the Lord for three years before the Lord really sent him out to fulfill the Great Commission. Stay in Acts 9. I'm going to come to it just in a second but in Galatians 1:17, Paul said uh, he said after I was saved I did not Im immediately confer with flesh and blood nor did I go up to Jerusalem immediately to those who were apostles before me but I went to Arabia and then what returned to Damascus that's where we picked the story up in Acts 9 verse 23 before between verses 22 and 3 there's a gap of about three years where Paul was in Arabia being taught by the Lord. Now he comes back to uh, Damascus. Acts 9.23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a, in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Uh, and did not believe that he was a disciple, that he had gotten saved. No way this guy got saved. <laughs> Come on, it's a trap. Uh, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how uh, he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so uh, he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but uh, they attempted to kill him. Uh, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, this concludes, uh, coincides, I should say, with what Paul says here in Galatians 1, verses 18 to 24. Let me read verse 18. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Uh, but I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. This is all the truth. This is my testimony. I'm giving you the truth. I'm not, you know, none of it's made up. This is the truth. So help me God. Now guys, after a short stay in Jerusalem, Paul began to make his way back to his hometown of uh, of Tarsus. And um, if you look at a map, 
If you were to go north from Jerusalem up through Syria, at one point, if you turn left, right when you get to the border of Syria, into Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, um, Cilicia is the region on the coast, right on the southeast side of the coast. Tarsus is there, right on the coast. So it looks like it was a, a port town, probably a very beautiful place to live. And so Paul begins to make his way back to his hometown of Tarsus. And let's finish chapter 1, verse 21. After I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, uh, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Now, guys, as we said last time, as Paul was making his way home, he went through Syria, and he preached the word, and he's preaching all the way home because that's who he was, the evangelist. And he's preaching all the way home. He arrives in Cilicia, the region where the city of Tarsus was located, and began to evangelize there. Historians have concluded that he remained there perhaps seven years, ministering in relative obscurity, until Barnabas recruited him to come and work in Antioch, a town in Syria. God was moving. And Barnabas didn't think he had enough knowledge of Gentiles to really minister to them properly. And he heard about this guy. He knew this guy, Saul, who grew up in Gentile country. And so, yeah, I got to go find Saul. He's the guy for this ministry. And so you don't have to turn to it. But Acts 11, verses 25 and 6, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Guys, Antioch in Syria became Paul's home church and the headquarters for the Gentile churches, even as Jerusalem was the home church and headquarters for the Jewish believers. Now, Galatians 2 verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. Why did they go up? We're going to get to that, all right? We're going to get to that. But whether this was 14 years after Paul's conversion or after his first missionary trip, we don't know. Verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem, not because the apostles summoned him, like he was a subordinate of theirs. Paul was a genuine, full-fledged apostle, equal with the other apostles. Now, I bring that up because a lot of people that, who didn't like Paul said he's not really a true apostle. He wasn't saved with the twelve. He didn't walk with Jesus uh, you know, when he was on the earth. He's, if anything, he's a secondary. He's a second-rate apostle. And we don't need to bring that up, that he went up to Jerusalem not because he was summoned. Get up here, you know. We got something to talk to you about, call him on the carpet kind of a thing. No, no, he went up by revelation. Jesus told him to go up. Why would he do that? Because the Lord wanted him to, get, to go and get some clarification. This situation needed to be resolved. You got a whole group of people running around telling people how to get saved a whole different way than God gave to Paul to be saved. And some of the churches were kind of buying into this idea. And so Jesus said, Paul, you need to go down to Jerusalem, and there you need to meet the apostles and get some clarification from them, uh, from the apostles there in the mother church. Jerusalem was kind of like the mother church, right? 
um, to see what they have to say about the teachings of the Judaizers. Guys, the Judaizers' heresy had really corrupted the concept of many Jewish Christians as to how Gentiles were saved. This is a very important issue, and that's why we're going through this. Paul brings it up here in Galatians. And uh, we're talking about freedom from law. We have to look at the background, okay? So Paul met with the leaders in Jerusalem privately, Peter, John, and, and the others. He met with them privately, not only because it was the respectful thing to do. Paul didn't want to ride into town with guns blazing, you know, making a big scene. But not only that, I think he was a little nervous in that many of the Judaizers were well-connected and powerful Jewish leaders. And he was worried that they had gotten to the other apostles and had corrupted their thinking as well in this issue. When Paul said he met with the other apostles privately to share the gospel the Lord had given him for the Gentiles, he said, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain, he wasn't expressing doubts that the gospel that he had been preaching might not be the right gospel. Nor was he doubtful that his ministry was not of the Lord, his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't racked with self-doubt. He wasn't expressing doubts that the gospel he had been preaching might not be the right gospel, or doubts about his ministry to the Gentiles in general. He knew the Lord had called him and told him what to preach to the Gentiles, and also the Jews for that matter. Okay, He was the apostle to the Gentiles. But everywhere he went, he went to the synagogue first in town. And what did he do? He preached to the Jewish people there. Because he always had a heart for his Jewish countrymen. Even though it didn't always work out very well. They usually threw him out of town. Uh, but he had a heart for his Jewish countrymen. So he was the apostle primarily to the Gentiles. But any chance he got, he shared the gospel with the Jews too. And by the way, let me just say this. We'll, we'll revisit this as we go forward. What I'm saying today might give you the impression that there's two Gospels, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. There are those who believe that. There's a very well-known preacher on TV. He's a good man. But he believes that there are two Gospels, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. I thoroughly reject that. And we'll talk more about that as we go. When I say that the, the Bible says the Gospel to the Jews was committed to Peter, and the gospel for the Gentiles was committed to Paul, you might think, well, there's two gospels. No. No, no. Peter was commissioned by Jesus to go to the Jews with the gospel, the gospel. Paul to the Gentiles with the same gospel. That's, the, the language sounds like it's talking about two separate gospels. We'll, we'll talk about that more as we progress, all right? But Paul knew. He didn't have any doubts about the message he was preaching. He knew Jesus called him to go to the Gentiles, told him what to say. It just means, though, that Paul was worried that if the apostles sided with the Judaizers and held the view that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and become Jews first by keeping the law of Moses before they could believe in Jesus for salvation, well, Paul knew that that would create a very serious problem for his ministry. Paul knew that it would destroy all of his hard work in trying to bring Jews and Gentiles together to make them one in Christ. They were one in Christ theologically, spiritually, but practically they were still divided. The Jews had their churches in Jerusalem or in, in, in Israel. The Gentiles had other churches around. And Paul, and he writes this to the Ephesians, 
that Jesus Christ has broken on the middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile, brought them together and made from the two one new man in Christ. And so Paul wanted to help promote the unity that was already there spiritually, Jew and Gentile, but was not being lived out in their daily lives. And so he was working very hard to bring Jew and Gentiles together uh, through the gospel, uh, the gospel that Jesus had given to him. And, and guys, that's what he's referring to when he said he was worried that he might have run or labored in vain. Not because maybe I don't have the right gospel and I'm preaching a false gospel and Gentiles are accepting this gospel of mine, but they're not really getting the true gospel. No, that's not what he was saying. What he was afraid of, if the other apostles had bought into the Judaizers' baloney, it would completely destroy the unity Paul was trying to bring between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Because now the Gentile Christians would say, well, then we're not really Christians unless we get circumcised. Well, we're not going to do that. So what now? So there wouldn't be this unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. Guys, such a division was this issue that it had the potential of tearing the church apart and ruining all the hard work Paul had done and trying to bridge the gap that still existed between Jewish and Gentile believers. That was the idea behind the offering. Remember how he was going around at one point gathering a collection for the saints in Jerusalem because there was a famine going on there at one point. They were really hurting the Jewish Christians there. And so Paul figured, if I can get the Gentile churches to chip in and send, we can send some money to these Jewish believers, it would go a long way in uniting Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. He was all about unity. Verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, being a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Guys, the bondage Paul is referring to here is the bondage of legalism. Legalism. Now, what Paul is recounting in Galatians, we see happening as we read uh, the book of Acts. So this incident recorded initially in Acts 15 uh, led to the first church council of the church age, the Jerusalem council. I want you to turn to Acts 15. Now hang in there with me. We're, we're looking at history. I know history doesn't excite a lot of people. Uh, I'll tell you why it's important as we, when we end. But I want you, since Paul is recounting something that occurred earlier, we're going to go to where it happened. Acts 15, starting with verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here we go. We're talking about this very issue. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, uh, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. What do you do? They're stopping at every town where they've preached the gospel, and people have gotten saved, a lot of Jewish believers, and, and, and they're talking about how God's moving among the Gentiles. 
in a powerful way. And everyone's rejoicing that God's on the move, right? God's doing a great work. So passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, and these were the Judaizers, who believed, well, they claimed to believe in Jesus. They, they called themselves Christians. That's all that it's saying there. Who believed? Well, there's a lot of folks who believe a lot of right things about Christ that aren't saved. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It begs the question, were these Judaizers really saved? Can a person be a Christian who tries to add human works to the gospel, making them essential for salvation? Hold on to that thought. In chapter 5, he's going to deal with it. But I'll just give you a little preview. In Galatians 2, verse 4, he calls these Judaizers false brethren. False brethren. Acts 15, verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Peter is reminding the members of this council that a good while ago, well, from historical records, uh, it would have been about 10 years. Most historians place the Council of Jerusalem about 49 A.D. And Peter's saying, look, about 10 years ago, remember how God sent me to the house of Cornelius. You can read about that in Acts 10. To preach the gospel to the Gentiles, officially opening the door to the Gentiles to be saved and become members of the church without being circumcised is the idea. Now, guys, I'm not saying that no Gentiles ever got saved before Acts 10. I'm just saying this was the official, God officially opening the door to the Gentiles because the church, as we just said, is a combination of Jews and Gentiles brought together as one in Christ. And so now it had to be something kind of dramatic so that the church would realize, hey, God's really opened the door to the Gentiles. Peter gets called on the carpet for this very thing going to the house of Gentiles to share the gospel, because at, at this point, most of the Jews didn't think Gentiles could, could be saved. And we'll probably talk about that more as we progress, all right? Um, but his point is, guys, remember, I was the guy. That 10 years ago, the Lord said, I didn't really want to go. And God said, look, Peter, because you know I've never eaten anything unclean, Lord, or been in the presence of anyone unclean. Don't call unclean what I've cleansed. Go. Went to the house of Cornelius, shared the gospel. And it wasn't like it is today, where he brought a, a, a keyboardist, you know, and then and, and as, the, as the organist is playing softly, come just as you are, you know, Peter gives the altar call. Before even God finished preaching, the Spirit of God fell on them. What, what, what did that mean? That they're saved. They didn't even have to pray the prayer of salvation. They were wide open. Everything Peter said, they were hanging on his every word. As soon as they found out it was Jesus who saves, and he, they get saved by faith, boom, they had faith. Peter didn't even have to lead them in the sinner's prayer. There are some people who are so wide open to the gospel that you know they don't need to come to Christ like many of us did. We stop and pray with somebody to receive Christ. Nothing wrong with that. 
But these folks were wide open. And Peter's drawing on this experience, right? Um, Acts 15, verse 8, I should say. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, just like he did with us, is the idea, the Jews. Now, Peter makes, a, makes the point that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, Cornelius, his family, and even his servants, to bear witness that they truly were born again, again, without being circumcised first. Guys, only God can see into the heart. If these people had not really received Christ into their heart, if they were not genuinely saved, God would never have given them the Holy Spirit. That was his way of saying, these people are saved. But they didn't receive the Spirit by keeping the law, is his point. They did not receive the Spirit by keeping the law. Paul's going to hit that hard in Galatians 3 to start the chapter. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law, but by believing the gospel, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter's message, if you want to, not now, but if you want to turn back to Acts 10 and read what happened, because he did preach a pretty powerful message to them before they got saved. But in Acts 10.43, Peter's message was simply, whoever believes in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, will receive remission of sins and salvation. He didn't say, you know, whoever believes and obeys the law of Moses will be saved. Acts 10, uh, 15, verse 10. Now, Peter said, why do, you, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as, as they. This was Peter's strongest statement. How that... Through the gospel of grace, God moved, or excuse me, God removed the yoke of the law, not only from the Jewish people, but also from all people, all Gentiles. Guys, the law was indeed a yoke that burdened the Jewish people for centuries. But that yoke had been taken away by Jesus Christ. You all know it, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor under the weight of the law, the yoke of the law. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's he talking about? Talk about the new covenant. The new covenant, which was going to replace the old covenant under Moses, the law. Guys, was the law nothing but a burden? Was it just a meaningless and useless yoke? that had absolutely no purpose? No, the law was given by God for a definite purpose, and it was good, but only if used properly for the purpose for which God intended it. Now, hang in there. We'll have more to say about this when we get to chapter 3. So Acts 15, verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Look, after Peter had finished, Barnabas and Paul now stand up and give an account of how God had visited the Gentiles, working through miracles, miracles that accompanied the preaching of the gospel, signs and wonders, or as Paul puts it, miracles and wonders. Paul's point is that God doesn't confirm false doctrine with miracles. The Judaizers didn't have any confirming miracles to prove that their gospel was really from God. 
uh, Galatians 3, verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? We'll talk about that more when we get there. But that's his point. Guys, we were preaching to the Gentiles. You think the Gentiles can't be saved? Well, I don't know what to tell you. We preached the gospel of grace. They were opening their hearts. God was confirming through miracles that these folks were saved and that the gospel they had received was the true gospel. God doesn't confirm false gospels with miracles. Now, that's his point. And after Paul and Barnabas finished giving their testimony, James, listen, evidently the head of the church at Jerusalem. Then James stood up and issued a summary statement. This was Jesus' half-brother, James, the one who wrote the epistle of James. Acts 15, verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has declared how God at the first visit of the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Now guys, here James is quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 12 which basically is saying that there's coming a day when God will do a great work of salvation among all mankind, Gentiles. One commentator adds a very important point. He has this to say about the prophecy in Amos. He said, and I quote, This is a millennial kingdom prophecy that Amos gives that James is quoting. This is a millennial kingdom prophecy. But James is using it to prove if Gentiles had to become Jews first to be saved, that would mean God only saves Jews. But he spoke of saving Gentiles here. If Gentiles can get saved in the great and glorious kingdom age, then why can't you accept that God can save them right now in the church age? End quote. That's James' point in quoting Amos. Even though in his day that was yet future, in our day it's still yet future. It's a kingdom age prophecy. But if God can save the Gentiles in the kingdom age, why can't he save them in the church age? Again, if you had to become a, as a Gentile, a Jew, before you could get saved, then God only saves Jews. But that's, that's obviously wrong. Acts 15, verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not mess around with this. This is of God. Verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Uh, the statement, therefore I judge, in the Greek is an authoritative statement spoken by someone who is in charge. This judgment or decree that James now renders indicates as he speaks from a position of authority. I determine, this would be like in a court of law, a judge rendering a verdict in a bench trial. But this indicates that James and not Peter was presiding over this council. 
James was the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. I know that Roman Catholics, and I was one of them at one time, wanted to make Peter the total leader of everything. But right here, it's just one place where it's obvious Peter was not in charge here. I'm not saying he was not a dynamic apostle, respected. I'm just saying that he was not the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why wasn't he? Shouldn't he have been? I don't know. God decided not to because Peter was probably um, traveling around as an itinerant preacher sharing the gospel. And God called James to be the one who stayed in town to oversee and be the leader of the church there. Um, now, let me just say this as we close. There are those who say that even though James is making a judgment based on grace and not law, that, that's what he's saying. He's making a judgment based on grace. That the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised before they become, before they can get saved. So, and I, and I see where they're coming from, people who feel this way. Maybe you do as you read this. I don't know. But there are those who say that even though James is making a judgment based on grace and not law, his pronouncement seems to contradict or reverse himself. I mean, was this not a form of legalism? Was he not now putting them back under the law, you know? Um, abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled from blood, and so on. So he just got done giving a judgment based on grace, but it sounds like then he follows it right with putting them back under the law. No. Let me just say this to that point. What James just said has nothing to do with the subject of salvation. That issue has already been settled. Salvation was by grace through faith. That's a done deal. This pronouncement or decree by James had nothing to do with salvation. It had everything to do with fellowship. Remember now, for centuries, God had separated the Jewish people from the Gentiles. They were unclean. You don't eat with them. You don't go into their house. I mean, it was for, for centuries they were taught to be separate. And now in Christ, it's all changed. Well, some people have trouble getting, getting with the program. And so the church, Paul leading the charge, wanted to do whatever they could do to bring them together. Gentiles, you can be saved by just putting your faith in Christ. We believe that. But we'd ask you to remember your Jewish brethren. For years, they were taught you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. You can't drink blood. You were never taught that. You, you did all of that when you were unbelievers. But don't you understand? Even though you have, a, a, you have the freedom to do those things, love says don't do those things if they're going to hinder your fellowship with another. If they're going to stumble a brother, a, a Jewish believer in Christ, because you invite them over and you serve pork chops and uh, blood soup, that, that's not going to uh, promote a lot of unity. So, you know, can we ask you, don't do that. Nothing to do with your salvation. This is just a plea to love, okay, to love. Unity and fellowship, that's what they were really all about. All right, let's end Acts 15, verse 22. So then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter to them, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. 
since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth that appear in this letter, is the idea. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. And guys, this judgment brought about by, the, by James at the climax or the close of the Jerusalem Council, um, reflects Paul's statement in Galatians 2, verses 6 to 10. Let's read that, and we'll close. So Galatians 2, verse 6, coming full, full circle now. Now you got the historical background, Paul's testimony. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. I'd be a little naughty here. He's talking about the, the apostles, Peter, John, James. Yeah, I had to go up and talk to these guys. I know that some people really put them on a pedestal. I don't know, what, you know what's going on with them, but God is no, shows no favor to any man. Okay, For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. They didn't teach me anything. Jesus taught me everything I needed. Verse 7, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the, for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, um, the gospel to the Gentiles, as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jews, was to Peter. For he who, who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, come on, Paul, you know, they seemed to be the big shots, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Uh, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So that kind of sketches out um, the historical context. Look, again, and I'm done. Let me just say this. A lot of Christians, and maybe their whole life, history never uh, interested them, okay? It, it always interested me. But there's a lot of people who history... Is about as dry and boring. It's old news, done. And it's over and done. Why are we even talking about it? Okay, um, but for Christians, this is very important. Some Christians, to the point they they don't like history so much they won't even read the Old Testament. That's wrong. It's not smart. Look, history is important. It connects us to our roots and provides context for our faith. That's why those working very hard to bring us into a Marxist socialist form of government they're divorcing us from our roots what do you think all those statues being pulled down was all about that was part of it remember in the summer of 2020 all those statues that were erected to commemorate people and events in our history were being torn down why do you think that was they want to separate us from our roots a people that knows their history is not a people that can be subjugated too easily I've got a sister-in-law in California who's a, a teacher. And I was talking to her one day, and she said that their school system no longer teaches American history. 
I thought that was very interesting. I understand exactly what's going on. If Satan can divorce you from your roots, he can create a new reality because you're ignorant. You're ignorant. Don't be ignorant. That's why we spent a lot of time on this subject, uh, liberty from law. We have to see it, how it evolved in Scripture and uh, how Paul dealt with these issues. And now that we have that foundation laid, we can move forward. But very important that we understand our history as Christians and so on. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more as we progress. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, nothing in your word is there um, by accident. It's nothing as extraneous information that is not really needed. Uh, every jot and tittle is placed in your word because it's important and we need to understand what you're saying. Give us grace to have a voracious hunger for your word in the new year. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament, Lord, because it's all your word. Man, man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, not just New Testament doctrine, but old and new. So give us grace, Lord, to be learned Christians, not ignorant Christians. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.